Welcome to Journal Spotting. Keen to go to the British Thoracic Society's Winter Conference, but COVID means work sucks, leave is cancelled, and you are stuck on an oxygen ward round all day. Journal junkies, your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you monthly roundups of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome, listeners, to part one of Journal Spotting's BTS coverage. Uh, I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and for the first time this February, the Journal Spotters packed their virtual backpacks and headed to the British Thoracic Society's Winter Conference. This is a huge international conference covering all things lung, and the conference was actually delayed and forced to be online. Can't imagine why. But the organisers did manage to pull this off, and it did not disappoint. Barney, you were one of the virtual attendees. How was it? Thanks, John. Yeah, well, I must say there were some key benefits to it being online. Um, My memories of the BTS over the last few years is like pelting up and down, loads of flights of steps and charging into the lifts and things and only just making the questions of some spoken session which you're meant to be at and then having to run away to get to another one. So it made it much easier, essentially having the same thing but just flicking through it online. it also meant that I spent the entire of Friday in my pajamas, and only one of the key speakers who I who I spoke to and recorded actually noticed. So I feel like I got away with that. Means you uh, couldn't get kicked out for wearing your pajamas this time. Yeah, ex- yeah, I know it was really awkward last time. I'm actually barred, but they couldn't bar me if <laughs> online. <laughs> Imagine if that was true. On the other hand, of course, it was uh, much harder to do things like networking and bumping into old colleagues. Um, and although it was easier to avoid some of the colleagues you might want to have, and it was much harder to go to the uh, pub afterwards. Or, yeah, actually the pub was non-existent, which was quite sad. Anyway, I managed to attend on two out of the three days and had my trusted co-host John helping coordinator in the background. <laughs> um, However, we did have a team of journal spotters covering all of the days and picking up little nuggets of respiratory joy for you all to feast on. Yeah, brilliant, Barney. And so we're here to summarise some of those amazing um, points that we've picked up. Um, what sort of topics um, were covered at the conference, Barney? Well, along with all the uh, you know classic respiratory problems, there were two really key themes. The obvious one was uh, COVID. Yeah, you guessed it. And the other one was pollution and climate change. Why? Well, these just happen to be the two main factors that threaten the existence of our entire species and the human race as we know it. And they are both inextricably linked to respiratory health. So I didn't hear too many people virtually complaining. Yeah, who would have thought the two biggest challenges to the human race falling on the shoulders of our respiratory colleagues? Um, so broad shoulders, don't worry, John. It's fine. Broad shoulders, yeah. <laughs> And listeners, just like all the best lungs, we have not one, but two BTS episodes for you. Going along with the key themes presented, part one is going to be about COVID and a few other respiratory issues. And part two is going to be about the environment and our health. We should point out now that if you're looking for the latest asthma and COPD guidance, that isn't really covered in these episodes. It's essentially these were not topics that were largely presented at the conference. The format for this episode is that we have a series of short presentations, either by the speakers themselves or our brilliant journal spotting team who attended the talks. And as I said earlier, this episode is going to cover COVID and some other key issues. Uh, Those are discrimination in COVID times, the cost of COVID to our healthcare services, the use of D-dimers in COVID, 
post-tuberculosis lung disease, why the circadian rhythm really is important clinically, and some top plural facts. As always, we would love your feedback on this, especially as this is the first time we've covered a conference, and we'd love to hear if you'd like us to do it more. So feel free to get in touch via email with thoughts and ideas on journalspotting at gmail.com, Twitter, or our recently upgraded website, journalspotting.com. On with the show. Thanks for coming on, Jamila. Thanks very much for having me, um, Barnaby. So, uh, yeah, just to introduce myself. So my name's Jamila. I am a um, respiratory clinician um, and I work clinically um, in London at Imperial and I'm a postdoc researcher affiliated with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Um, And my um, background is that I did my PhD in Malawi and I've spent um, quite a bit of time sort of working out there in, in the past few years. So that's what a lot of my experience is rooted in. Um, I was instructed to give you <laughs> a strange fact, um, and uh, I guess what I should say is that I have a secret desire. Well, I've, I've become addicted to pottery of late, and I have a secret desire to retire early and leave both clinical and academic uh, work and become a potter for the rest of my life. So we'll see whether that happens eventually. Amazing, um, brilliant. Okay. <laughs> in the meantime, um, yeah. So uh, I guess my talk today was on post-TB lung disease, which is what my PhD was on. Um, And really, I guess it's rooted in the notion that a lot of what we talk about when we talk about TB is about TB illness itself and about how we treat it, Um, so how we treat the disease. And we have this assumption that at treatment completion, um, our patients return to normal again. And really, in the UK and elsewhere, we discharge patients at treatment completion, and often we sort of never see them again. Um, But I think there's increasing literature and a lot of experience, particularly in low income settings, that that's not the case um, and that a lot of people have ongoing morbidity after treatment completion. As a respiratory person, I guess my focus was on post-TB lung disease. um, And we know that people completing TB treatment are left with spirometric abnormalities, um, structural lung damage with bronchiectasis or sort of really bad disruption of their parenchyma Um, and that those changes don't recover completely over time. There may be some recovery in the first six to 12 months after people finish treatment as they kind of rehabilitate themselves and get back on their feet again, but a lot of them are left with persistent um, problems. Um, And and it's probably at at three years after treatment completion, we think um, maybe somewhere around 15% of people have restrictive pathology and 15% have obstruction. Um, so not, not small numbers when you think about the number of people going through TB treatments. Um, and so I guess the other important thing is, as well as knowing that there's this burden of pathology, um, is understanding how it affects people. And a lot of people have ongoing symptoms, um, shortness of breath, cough, sputum production. Um, and that can affect their lives and their livelihoods. Um, and obviously in low income settings like Malawi, being able to work doing manual labor, often, you know, farming or lifting things or working in the market is really important to people's ability to make a living and support themselves. Um, and some of our data from Malawi shows that people might not get back to their levels of employment or work that they were at before they became unwell 
um, and that people who have abnormal spirometry or ongoing respiratory symptoms um, are more likely to be out of work in the long term. So it certainly seems to be one of the many contributing factors to ongoing problems earning a living after you've had TB disease. So I guess the other thing I talked about this morning was what we could do about post-TB lung disease. Um, and for me, that's preventing people from getting it first and foremost. Um, and that may be partly about diagnosing people sooner. Um, it may be about addressing um, environmental or you know, host-driven risk factors to do with people's immune response so that we can minimize lung damage during treatment. Um, the other aspect, of course, is managing people who have established lung disease after they've had TB. And pulmonary rehabilitation is something that's, you know, cheap, potentially accessible, something that could be delivered in a decentralized way. And there's increasing data coming out um, about that, particularly from Kampala, Uganda. There's some really interesting work coming out from there. And then I think, I think, and I'm obviously biased, but I think we should be measuring morbidity at TB treatment completion more systematically than we are. I think we should say that actually we don't just want to keep TB patients alive. We want to make sure that they're well when they finish their TB treatments. And I think um, that should be a sort of explicit target of TB treatment programs. And so I think there is a case for sort of routine measurement of morbidity, both in terms of lung disease, but also other sort of TB comorbidities at treatment completion. And if we're not going to do it systematically in national TB programs, there are research studies, you know, TB treatment trials or active case finding trials, which could be collecting that data so that it can feed into decision making, really, about how we deliver care. Been, um, there's a systematic review that's been published recently that shows that all cause mortality amongst um, people who have had TB previously is higher than mortality rates amongst people who have never had TB before. So um, there is something about having had TB which is associated with increased mortality. Obviously, it's difficult to pick that apart. Um, there, it could be that this is a really disadvantaged population and um, you know, that there are other things that are contributing to long-term mortality, but that difference seems to persist even in comparison to people who have had latent TB infection. So it may be something about the TB disease process itself. And um, it's possible that post-TB lung disease is contributing to increased post-TB mortality. Um, we don't know that yet. We don't have that data yet, but I think it's a hypothesis and I think it's one that's worth exploring. So yeah, I think that's probably a summary of what I talked about. So another one which I saw today, I thought was reasonably interesting and goes along with what we've previously said on our COVID episodes was um, a talk about a study called the prediction of pulmonary embolism and CTPA findings in the COVID-19 crisis. And this was based from a single um, institution in North Middlesex in the UK. They came up with a few things here, which I just thought would be worth going through. So one of the things they did was compare the CTPAs they did in April 2019, so pre-COVID, to the CTPAs they did in April 2020 during the first wave of the pandemic. Interestingly, the pickup rate for PEs in April 2019 was about 11% compared to 24% in April. And that's with doubling the amount of CTPAs that they'd actually done. So this perhaps isn't particularly surprising in the sense that COVID is known to 
cause thrombosis and it's likely that the increased pickup rate is related to that but it does show that you know one in four ctpas actually did pick up a pe which is much higher than we usually see it also gave, talks about some fairly obvious things such as d-dimer levels in covid were very high no surprise with or without pe on ctpa d-dimer levels can go up to eighty thousand. so even if you see huge d-dimer levels it does not unfortunately mean they have a pe um, or a DVT or anything else. But we can take something from that because the average D-dimer um, in a COVID patient with a PE was much higher than the average patient without COVID with a PE, if you know what I mean. Um, so the average D-dimer was 38,000 if they've got COVID and a PE, but about 3,800 without COVID. So and there was some discussion there about whether we could be doubling the D-dimer cutoff in COVID, but actually Generally speaking, people were saying that the D-dimer just isn't very useful for diagnosing PE in COVID. And like the D-dimer was kind of designed for and should be used for, it should be used as a rule-out tool rather than a rule-in tool. So, of course, if your D-dimer is negative, very unlikely to have a PE. If it's positive and you've got COVID, unfortunately, we can't take too much from it. But if it is stoggingly high, a PE is slightly more likely. Hello, my name is Dr. Marina Sultana. I'm an NIHR Academic Clinical Fellow in Respiratory Medicine at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham and the University Hospitals of Birmingham. I'm part of a team which has been looking at the roles of social determinants of health, including specific index of multiple deprivation sub-indices on how patients with COVID-19 present to hospital, whether they then require admission to intensive care and their outcomes from the admission. And interestingly, uh, this study found that patients who were admitted from regions of highest, or all of our studies have found that patients admitted from regions of highest household overcrowding deprivation and highest living environment deprivation, well, those patients are more likely to present to hospital with multi-lobar pneumonia and more likely to be admitted to intensive care. Now, interestingly, 60% of BAME patients with COVID-19 in hospital were populated within the highest household overcrowding deprivation indices in comparison to 40% of white patients. Uh, and actually that in itself signifies a significant um, disparity that we found to be quite interesting. And likewise, about 70% of BAME patients with COVID-19 in our first study were populated with the highest in regions where there was highest air pollution deprivation and indoor housing quality deprivation in comparison to 50% of white patients. And that again signifies about a 20% difference. So BAME patients, 20, there is a 20% greater proportion of BAME patients that come from these most deprived uh, forms of deprivation, household overcrowding and pollution. And we know now that those forms of deprivation are associated with presenting to hospital with multilobar pneumonia and requiring admission to intensive care. Now that, we think that's really quite interesting because, of course, patients who are presented to intensive care are more likely to have an adverse outcome with COVID-19 than patients who are not admitted to intensive care. Now, interestingly, um, on one of our larger studies, we, we looked at whether deprivation is an independent risk factor 
for mortality. And we, our studies have not identified household overcrowding or air pollution or housing quality to be independent risk factors for mortality, despite the fact that they increase your risk of admission to intensive care. However, comorbidities and multimorbidity do appear to be independent risk factors for mortality. And to give you some statistics, patients who in our first study presented with high blood pressure were 1.8 times more likely to die. Patients who presented with ischemic heart disease were about 2.1 times more likely to die. Patients who were admitted with diabetes were 1.6 times more likely to die. And patients admitted with underlying chronic kidney disease were 2.3 times more likely to die. Um, and comorbidities have emerged to be um, a single independent risk factor for mortality. And interestingly, in our first study, we really wanted to explore this idea of is it comorbidities or is it deprivation that has an impact? And, and we, we did a cluster analysis and a series of cluster analyses that, to look at this in a bit more detail. And we identified that irrespective of deprivation, patients who died from coronavirus were more likely to have higher comorbidities than patients who uh, who, who didn't. So. In summary, what we found is that the Charleston comorbidity score is a very helpful tool for clinicians to use on the front line um, to quantify comorbidities and to inform the index of suspicion of care. But actually, that as a clinician in a hospital environment, we only see patients in the hospital environment. We don't know what environment those patients have come from. And it's worth being aware that patients who are admitted from regions of highest household overcrowding or from highest pollution deprivation, those patients are more likely to present with multilobar pneumonia and are at increased risk of admission to ITU. And our severity scores at the moment uh, do not seem to account for some of these factors. And that's where our work uh, is going uh, in terms of looking at that in more detail, understanding that in more detail. Uh, and another point that we think is interesting is that patients of BAME ethnicity presented a lot younger in age compared to Caucasian patients. Uh, and actually our severity score tools at the moment don't account for multi-ethnic age structures. So BAME patients have younger age structures, even in our national data um, by the Office for National Statistics, and that is not accounted for in our severity scoring tools. And so it's perfectly possible for a patient of BAME ethnicity to present to hospital and not trigger the scoring systems we have in place for severity. And of course, some of the other risk factors we talked about that BAME patients are, are more likely to be exposed to, such as household overcrowding and pollution, well, those factors aren't reflected in our severity scoring systems at present either. So this is a really interesting and important area for, uh, for us as clinicians to be aware of. How do um, socioeconomic factors affect how patients present and in a way that we don't necessarily see on a patient when they come into hospital? Um, so uh, we found this work very interesting. This is certainly the basis for further work in this area that we are already uh, taking underway. And we have formed collaborations with other centres nationally to look at this in uh, significantly more detail. Uh, and if anybody does want to get in touch with me um, about this work, I'm always happy to uh, be contacted about it. I'm on at Marina Sultan underscore or my email address is 
marinasultan at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. So thanks, Barney. I'm Sam Bartlett-Pestel. I'm a respiratory registrar in South London. Um, and yesterday I spoke at the British Thoracic Society winter meeting um, about some work I did when I was based at NHS England during a fellowship last year. Um, and I worked with the Getting It Right First Time team um, to create a national survey. And before I talk about that, I've been told I need to give you a fun fact about myself. Um, so the first time I set foot on a skateboard in adult life, I was in Australia. I was learning to surf and I was eager to get better. I bought a skateboard um, effectively actually off a, off a child on Gumtree and got it home in my car park in Australia, put my foot on it, fell off and broke my wrist and had to have six weeks off work, which uh, they weren't thrilled about, especially as I was doing a night shift that night. Um, Brilliant. Thanks, Dan. Good. <laughs> um, so that's my fun fact. Um, back to the survey. Uh, with the Getting It Right First Time team, uh, we created a, an online survey and sent it to respiratory teams in England uh, and we got responses between August and September and we were asking them about their experiences during the first wave of the pandemic. Um, we got a, a pretty good response rate, um, about uh, over 40% response rate uh, and we asked lots of different questions in different domains mostly about their uh, COVID data so the number of patients that came in went to ITU, patients that died uh, and also their bed capacity, workforce, uh, equipment, diagnostics and interventional services, uh, and then bits around uh, teaching and clinical process. And what we found was the mortality rate was pretty static. Uh, and actually from other GERFT work, we, we knew that was the case across England, that it didn't really vary that much. The admission rate to intensive care, uh, there was a huge range between 4% and um, 80% um, bit of patients with COVID being admitted to intensive care. The number of level two beds rose dramatically uh, and we think that respiratory physicians were pretty involved in increasing those beds and, and primarily because looking after people on CPAP and HIFO nasal oxygen. Uh, and in fact, so much so that in over 40% of sites that responded, respiratory physicians came off the acute medical on-call rotor. Uh, CPAP was used not just inside rooms, uh, but also in closed bays and closed wards, and for anyone clinical um, during first wave and second and subsequent waves will know that uh, they, they've seen that firsthand, and, and there's been a lot of people on, on level two care outside of side rooms. Um, there was a huge pressure on sites, and I think that's reflected in the number of sites that ended up having shortages with uh, equipment and PPE. Um, so we found uh, almost a fifth of sites had shortages of, of CPAP machines. Uh, and in fact, many sites were loaned CPAP machines from, from national bodies. And quite a few sites were also using low-flow domiciliary machines. Um, so they're intended for home use for um, obstructive sleep apnea, for example, not intended for patients requiring high levels of inspired oxygen. Um, we also found that registrar clinics were cancelled or reduced in, in almost all places um, and departmental teaching was um, reduced or cancelled in most places as well. Uh, diagnostic and interventional services were greatly affected 
with things like bronchoscopy and EBUS continuing for um, patients with cancer in 43% of places, but being suspended um, or cancelled in, in most others. Uh, and things like sleep uh, services were uh, suspended uh, or reduced in almost all centres. So uh, w- overall, what we, what we expect is that it's been a huge change because of COVID um, on respiratory departments. And we think there'll probably be quite a lot of pressure, not only during the COVID surges, but also in the recovery phase. Um, and especially when you think of the, the COVID follow-up that will be needed for all those patients, uh, I think respiratory and acute medicine and general medicine um, will, will have quite a significant pressure, not only with those things, but then playing catch up for the services that have been lost. And there may be also, depending on how long these things last and whether we face another one, um, groups of junior doctors who haven't had the exposure to teaching opportunities that they otherwise would have done uh, and might find some, you know, uh, some gaps in procedural competencies um, that may end up needing extra training. Who knows? Um, but that, that's a, a whirlwind snapshot of, of our survey. So I'm Stefano Palazzo. I am a respiratory registrar at King's College Hospital in London. Um, Interesting fact about me, or whether it's as interesting or not, remains to be seen. But I have just become a new dad as of 12 weeks ago. And perhaps it's for that reason that uh, I was particularly interested in a session about circadian rhythms in the body and indeed clocks. Um, So I went to a session which was referring to or looking at clocks particularly within the lung but actually circadian clocks within the body as a whole Um, I think we're probably all aware that the body has circadian rhythms there's a central clock within an area of the brain known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus and that influences our overall circadian rhythm however something that I wasn't aware of and came up in this session is the numerous different clocks that are uh, present in all body systems including the lungs and indeed the uh, immune system as well So there's lots of complicated mechanisms, complicated molecular mechanisms for how these clocks work. But there are a few key take homes, which I think would be relevant to the general medic on the wards, which I thought were really interesting and not areas that I've thought about before. The first of these is that actually inflammation is highly circadian, which means that actually certain diseases can present in different ways at different times of day. I think we all understand that in the context, for example, of diurnal variation in asthma with associated changes in eosinophils. But this is true of lots of inflammatory diseases and and other diseases as well that we might see on the acute general take. So worth bearing in mind. Associated with that then is that actually the treatment of those diseases really varies through the day. And one of the speakers was talking about the administration of steroids in difficult to treat asthma. And the evidence there shows that actually giving steroids in the afternoon, around three o'clock in the afternoon, is much more effective than in the morning because of the uh, generation of inflammatory responses and the way that steroids work in suppressing the production of inflammatory mediators. On account of that, they've shown that actually you can reduce the dose of steroids that are needed if you give steroids at a particular time of day, something that might be interesting in our patients. Another area which I thought is probably quite relevant at the moment, given that everybody is very focused on vaccinations, is that vaccine response is hugely variable depending on the time of day. And there's some evidence from flu, from H1N1 in this case, that actually giving a morning vaccination 
led to a significantly increased uh, both humoral response and indeed the length of the response, antibody response in people who are given morning vaccinations versus afternoon vaccinations. Something to bear in mind when we're thinking about vaccinating all our patients. And then I suppose the final thing that uh, certainly the, uh, the night med reg might be thinking about here is that actually jet lag and indeed shift working can hugely affect uh, the way that people either present with disease and indeed their susceptibility to disease. I'm afraid to say that in certain mouse models uh, of jet lag and indeed shift work, they've shown a reduced survival in models of sepsis and a higher inflammatory response. So probably something for us all to at least be aware of rather than necessarily anything that we can control. There's also evidence that actually the time of presentation with pneumonia affects the severity of pneumonia in matched cohorts of patients. If you present in the morning, you're more likely to have a severe presentation. So bringing all of this together, why might this be relevant to us? Well, clearly there, we have to be thinking about timing of presentation of disease. And indeed, we might be thinking about timing of uh, provision of medications or indeed prescription of medications. And it's possible that as more evidence emerges, the field of chronotherapy, which is in this case, when drugs are given specific times for specific drugs being given, might start to emerge and become more relevant to our practice. A little interesting tip that I thought. Right, so next up, spoken session trials on new concepts in plural disease. Today I am joined with Amy Downs, a fellow respiratory registrar. Hello, Amy. Want to introduce yourself and, I don't know, tell us a fun fact? Hi, um, I'm Amy. I'm one of the respiratory registrars at King's, working with Barney at the moment, but a Kent Surrey and Sussex trainee. Um, and my nominated fun fact is that I have two cats called Cinnamon and Nutmeg, as I believe we're having a, a cat-themed day today. Very nice. I think we've all got our cats jumping all over us. I've had the same sort of issue just now too. So um, great to have you with us, Amy. Thanks for joining. So plural diseases, if you haven't been seeing the BTS, they go through a number of different lectures about the sort of different topics around new concepts in plural disease. We won't go through everything, we'll just yeah, little snippets or interesting facts. So Amy, what about, what did you think about the um, the talk on transudates and intervention. What was that about? So I thought the uh, presentation was interesting for two reasons. I think partly because it focused on transudates and that's not something that we, it's not the traditional um, effusions that we put drains in. Um, one would think more commonly in terms of indication of exudates, although actually probably the burden of disease is transitive more than exodative and also because it was um, the purpose of that particular talk was on um, indwelling pleural catheters so long-term management which was a change in focus again and its comparison with recurrent pleural interventions and how they and how they panned out which I thought was interesting for long-term management of patients with these conditions. It's sort of the dogma isn't it with respiratory registrars you get the call oh can you uh, can you drain this effusion I mean is it a transitate? not really interested, try diuresis. So um, it's interesting to sort of see what they're saying about it. And uh, what were their what were their main outcomes? So the main outcomes were interesting in that actually one of the things that they used was a breathlessness score and actually didn't find that there was much improvement in breathlessness you in the patients who had an IPC inserted rather than a recurrent thoracocentesis. So you could see from that that perhaps it doesn't necessarily improve patient care the way you'd hope. However, there's obviously other 
added elements that they didn't specifically quantify, like recurrence of admission. And one of the things that was mentioned towards the end that I thought was interesting was the speaker pointed out that actually a lot of these patients, for various reasons, might well be on DOACs and starting and stopping medication every time they might need an intervention just adds another layer of complexity to the entire process. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's really interesting. Uh, this is this concept of refractory sort of effusions and actually maybe some intervention might help, but overall it doesn't look like it really improved breathlessness that much for any of them. There's probably other factors which are causing them to be breathless. Very good. Okay. So we might see the other factor about that one actually was about the albumin levels and how if they had an IPC, they drained off an indwelling pleural catheter. They drained off loads of fluid, lots more, and their albumin levels dropped really quite significantly. And it's unclear how this would have affected the patients. Yeah, I think the um, the numbers were approximately 17 litres with an indwelling yeah. versus about two litres with recurrent drains, yeah. which is fairly marked. Yeah, but not much difference. Okay, brilliant. Um, another one which I thought was quite interesting was a, a talk about sort of pneumothorax recurrence and what they were trying to do were was trying to figure out how we can risk stratify these people and who is most at risk of having a recurrence of a primary spontaneous pneumothorax. The current sort of situation, as we know, about a quarter of all primary spontaneous pneumothoraces reoccur, but we only offer surgery after the second one or if, yeah, if it's on the same side or a contralateral one. So this was using data from the RAMP trial. And I, we have actually previously mentioned this on a previous journal spotting episode. And essentially what they looked, they compared was um, the risk of recurrence, whether they intervened with a indwelling drain, which their patient went home with or were admitted after an aspiration and a and a, a drain put in with an inpatient stay or just observation. And like some of the data which can, has come out from Australia recently, what they found is the more that we intervene, the higher the risk of recurrence. So to put that into context, so if they just observed and they did nothing, and so no intervention for a usually a small pneumothorax, then the recurrence rate was around 12%. However, if they put a drain in, the recurrence rate was around 21%. And that is actually, it's been found in other studies as well. So something to do with the actual intervention means people are more likely to recur. I was just going to say, I took something quite different from that, actually, which is that they were comparing three things. They were comparing the arm that had no intervention at all, and then two different types of intervention, because the RAMP studies had a lot of work done on ambulatory intervention for pneumothoraces, and that's been a big part of the work. And actually, my interpretation was that they were intervening based on the existing BTS guidelines. And so rather than it being the intervention that caused the rate of recurrence, it was the severity of pneumothorax right from the beginning that then meant that it would actually require intervention down the line. So those that failed an aspiration actually potentially failed an aspiration because there was a bigger underlying issue that might then lead, might then lead them in some cases to have a recurrence. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're, right. You're absolutely right, Amy. And I think that's what they were kind of, that was, that was one, of, one of their conclusions, wasn't it? And I think um, looking at the Australian data, which compared um, just observation, no matter what the size of the pneumothorax, and they also had a, a lower um, recurrence rate as well. So again, 
muddy picture. We don't know all the data just yet, but it's really interesting to see what will come from that. The other thing I thought was quite interesting is they talked about some data from Japan where there was a higher rate of primary spontaneous pneumothorax if you had a bigger growth spurt between the age of 14 and 16. So a typical patient who gets a primary spontaneous pneumothorax is usually male and tall. It's something to do with the stretching. But if you had a big growth spurt in that age range, you're apparently more likely. So there we go. Random fact for the day. Finally, I thought the... Uh, the talk about pleural infections was also quite interesting. So we know with bacterial pleural infections, in about 40% of the cases, the pathogen is unknown, okay? So it doesn't culture anything. That might be because we've already started antibiotics or it just doesn't grow anything. And about 30% go on to require surgery. So this is bacterial pleural infections or essentially empyemas. So this study used this um, concept of a 16S RNA generation sequencing, which looks at all the, I think it's the DNA in the fluid, can give you a detailed list of all the bacteria which is present in that sample. And apparently it hasn't really been used in plural fluid before. What they found was that the vast majority of plural infections are polymicrobial. Not too surprising, but actually we always seem to focus on the one bacteria which we find or we suspect it is. The other things they found is that actually, if you had anaerobes and other gram-negative bacteria, which would seem to be the most common source from their data, your outcome was much better than if you say you had things like um, Staphylococcus or Enterobacter, and they had a worse survival. And that may be because of some of the Staphylococcus was MRSA and therefore had resistant bugs. So the antibiotics we're giving initially aren't working. It's only when you finally isolate a bug, you start them on the right treatment. But I thought that was quite useful and interesting as well. Well, journal junkies, I'm still sticking with it, John. That's it from part one of our BTS extravaganza. Um, hope you enjoyed it. So, uh, John, go over. What, what are the key points that you, you, you gained from this? Yeah, so many interesting facts. It's really good. Um, turns out respiratory doctors did a lot for COVID. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> but it was no no on a serious note it was good to back up what we have heard before and go into a bit more detail about discrimination and mortality in covid also how covid has affected our hospitals over the last year and that death rates have stayed constant despite the hugely varying icu admission rates yeah no i thought it was really interesting wasn't it and again loads to take home um for me i, I enjoyed the post tb lung talk i know that's very respiratory but i thought it was a, a brilliant talk and perhaps something which i and many others hadn't really thought of that much before and i must say i enjoyed uh, stefano um managing to make circadian rhythms seem both interesting and relevant to our daily practice which is quite a feat and i'm certainly going to look into afternoon steroids instead of morning steroids a bit closer brilliant well uh feel free to pause have a coffee and then go straight into part two if you like we will see you there <laughs> see you there listeners bye you have been listening to journal spotting with your host dr barnaby hirons dr jonathan hudson and the rest of our fantastic speakers information on today's show can be found on our website journalspotting.com on twitter at journal spotting facebook or instagram Special thanks goes out to our logo lady Natalia, graphics man Costa, and promotion stars Isabel and Abby. If you like today's podcast, subscribe and leave us a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us.
Disclaimer time, this podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.